You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So the purpose of Psalm 48 is to deepen our hope in heaven for the sake of our witness to the next generation. The main idea of this psalm is that our faith in the future, our meditation on what's to come, our glad hope in God's promise about the end of time will both drive and shape what we tell our children about God. Psalm 48 is aiming at that, and what I'd like to do this morning is to just show you this in the text and then end with an application of what this means for us. And God willing, we're going to get there by looking at three questions, and I'd like for us to just stack the questions like this. The first question, number one, is the question, what is heaven? Number one, what is heaven? Number two, right here, is what does heaven do? And then number three is the question, how does our hope become a witness? Those are the one, two, three questions we're going to look at, but first, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, please lead us and guide us to understand your word. We ask that you would show us now in this moment the glory of your Son. For we ask this in his name. Amen. So the first question is the question, what is heaven? That's right here, what is heaven? And I just want to note that I'm using the word heaven here, but notice that in the psalm, the word heaven is not used at all. So where am I getting this from? Why am I saying the word heaven? Look at verse 1 for a moment. Verse 1, great is, just follow along with what is being said in the first two verses. Great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And again, you notice in the first two verses, the word heaven is not used. We don't see the word heaven, but it is easy to see the main topic in these first two verses. You guys catch the topic here in the first two verses? It's the, it's the city. You see the city here mentioned twice. The city of our God. Then in verse 2, the city of the great king. That's what the psalmist is describing here. He's describing this city. And our first thought when we read about this city is that the psalmist must be talking about Jerusalem. And that's right, because Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel. It was the place where God's temple was located. It was the place where the king's palace was located. And so it makes sense that when we read this about a city, we think Jerusalem. However... What's described here in Psalm 48 is not the old historical Jerusalem, but this city in Psalm 48 is the new Jerusalem. This is the heavenly city. And so I want to just be clear from the start that Psalm 48 is about the future city that Jesus will bring here at the end of time when he returns to make all things new. This Jerusalem is the new Jerusalem, a heavenly city. And when you hear those words, heavenly city, hopefully you have a couple things in your heads. First, I hope you're thinking about heaven, okay? If you're not, think about it now. Heaven, all right? Hold heaven and think about heaven. What do you think about when you think about heaven? Have that here in your minds, heaven. 
And then city. Think about cities. Think about a city, okay? So you got these two things right now. We have these two things in our heads. We got heaven and we have a city. And what needs to happen as we read Psalm 48 and as we're more and more shaped by the Bible is that these two things, heaven and city, need to come together. We need to understand that heaven is a city. And so when we think about heaven, we think about a city. And when we think about cities, we think about that's what heaven one day will be. But perfectly, that's what the Bible tells us. We know this from Revelation chapter 21. When John describes his vision of heaven in the future, he says in John 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's all of this. It's gone now in Revelation 21. The sea also was no more. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's how the Bible ends. The last two chapters of Revelation end by pointing us to this heavenly city. Because this heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, this is where everything is headed. right? This is what all of this has always been about. This city. And this city that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22, it's not the first place we see it. In fact, the Psalms show us this city as well, especially this section of Psalms around Psalm 48. And so for just a minute, I want us to look back at Psalm 48 and then turn back a couple pages and remember how this section begins in Psalm 42. And so if you can, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles, your phones, and try to follow along with me as we walk from Psalm 42 to Psalm 48. And I'm going to have to go really fast, so try your best to keep up. But I'm going to hurry, starting in Psalm 42. The first psalm here of Psalm 42 is the first psalm of Book 2. And you can see in the superscript, it's a psalm of Korah. And the psalm starts with this resolute hope. If you're reading the first couple verses of Psalm 42, the psalmist is describing a gap in his experience. There's a gap between what he wants in God and what he knows. And that creates a sadness that we see in verse 2. And then this is where we see the psalmist questioning his soul. The first time we see this in the Psalms where the psalmist is addressing his soul and he says in Psalm 42 verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He questions his soul and then he exhorts his soul with hope to hope. He says back to his soul, hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation And my God, that's Psalm 42, verse 5. And then the psalmist repeats it again in Psalm 43, verse 5. And then in Psalm 44, he takes us deeper into his struggle. There's more struggle for us to see here. Just in case we mistake 
the hope in God exhortation to be a kind of abracadabra, the psalmist actually hits his lowest point in Psalm 44. After he's preached to himself, after he's addressed his soul, he hits his lowest low in Psalm 44, verse 9, when he says to God, you have rejected us. You, God, have disgraced us. You have not gone out with our armies. You have led us to slaughter, verse 11. You have made us a laughingstock, verse 14. And I don't think we deserve any of it, he says in verse 17, which I think is the lowest low. It's an implicit charge of injustice on God. It's a low moment for the psalmist. And yet still the psalmist here, he practices what he preaches in Psalms 42 and 43. The psalmist hopes in God and he hopes in God by praying. He petitions God to act. The psalmist says at the end of Psalm 44 verse 26, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of of your steadfast love. And we've seen this already, but it's worth saying again. The psalmist here is praying for God to send salvation. And God answers that prayer by sending his king, which is Psalm 45. The psalmist prays, send salvation. Psalm 44, Psalm 45, we read about God's king, the Messiah who saves who is Jesus. Jesus is our true hope and salvation, and He is worthy of all of our trust. We can trust Jesus. We should trust Jesus. And so even if you're here in this moment and you don't yet trust Him, I want to invite you to trust Him now. He is worthy of your trust. He is good. We can trust Him, so trust Him. Psalm 45 ends in verse 17 after describing the king and his wedding day. The psalm ends in verse 14 with the Messiah, Jesus, receiving the praise of the nations forever. That's the end of Psalm 45. And speaking of nations, speaking of this king, Psalm 46 comes next and says, Hey, let me tell you about a city. It's the city of God. It's the city where God dwells. It's an unmovable city, Psalm 46, verse 5. And from this city, the raging nations will be put in their place, verse 6. From this city, all wars will cease, verse 9. And from this city where God dwells, He will be exalted in all the earth, verse 10. And hey, speaking of all the earth, Psalm 47 comes next and says, let's talk more about that. God is a great king over all the earth, verses 2 and 7. God sits on his throne in his city and he reigns over all the peoples, verse 8. God is high and exalted above all things, Verse 9, and as Mike said last week, God will have worshipers from every people group throughout all the world. And they will gather, verse 9, as the people of God in the faith of Abraham by trusting in Abraham's offspring, the Messiah. 
That's what the end of Psalm 47 is saying. And that has not happened yet. Which means, if we're tracking from 42 to 47, by the time we get to Psalm 48, we should feel a disconnect between what these Psalms have been saying and our current reality. What we're reading in, this Psalms, in, the, in these Psalms is different from what we see in the news, right? The, the city of Jerusalem, filled with God's presence in Psalm 46, is not the Jerusalem as we know it today. Anybody been keeping up with what's been going on in Jerusalem for the last 3,000 years? It's not a river whose streams make the city glad. Wars and violence have not ceased. Not in Jerusalem. Not anywhere. Not yet. Which means these Psalms, 42 to 47, they are describing a day in the future. And we know that before we even get to Psalm 48. These Psalms have already set us up to think about the future end of time promise of God. A future day. A day that will come. And then Psalm 48 just confirms this for us. Look at Psalm 48 verse 1. This is an image in 48. The image in verse 1 is that God who is great receives great praise. He's greatly to be praised in his city, and his city is unlike any city there ever was. And as the psalmist is putting the image of this city before our eyes, notice that he is pointing us heavenward. It's subtle, but notice this. The psalmist first describes this city as God's holy mountain. Where do we look to see mountains. We look up. Then he says the city is beautiful in elevation. Where do we look to see something elevated? We look up. Then he says, he calls the city Mount Zion in the far north. Where do we look to see the far north? It's this way. But if we're looking for the far north, it's more like that, right? We look up. In fact, the word here, the Hebrew word for far north, is actually a synonym for heaven. In some places in the Bible, like in Isaiah 14, 13, this word for far north actually refers to God's heavenly throne. The idea here for this word is way up there, way up there. And so right away as we come to Psalm 48, the psalmist is putting before our eyes this city. He wants us to think about this city and he wants us to think about heaven and he wants us to do this. You see it? This is a heavenly city. The whole Bible and especially Revelation 21 leads us to think this way. A heavenly city. The whole Bible, especially Revelation 21, 
leads us to think this way. This section in the Psalms leads us to think this way. And even just the first two verses of Psalm 48 leads us to think this way. And so church, we're going to think that way, okay? Whatever you think about heaven, make sure you're thinking about a city. And whatever you, you think when you think about cities, think one day there will be a perfect city, a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem church. The question is, what is heaven? What is heaven? The answer is heaven is a city. Heaven is the future city of the new Jerusalem. We tracking? Heaven is the new Jerusalem. Second question. That's number one. What is heaven? Second question. What does heaven do? What's it do? The answer is that heaven, the future city of the new Jerusalem, manifests the triumph of the Messiah. Now, in what way does the new Jerusalem manifest the Messiah's triumph? Well, I think there are at least three ways we see in this psalm, and I want to show them to you. These are three ways that the new Jerusalem show us the triumph of Jesus. Three ways the new Jerusalem shows us the triumph of Jesus. Number one, we see the triumph of Jesus in that all the kings of the earth who have set themselves against him will be conquered. I love this. Check, check this out. In Psalm 48, first thing back to Psalm 2. Now it's been a few years since we've been in Psalm 2. But Psalm 2 is a, a very important psalm because it, it starts, Psalms 1 and 2, especially 2, starts by giving us a messianic lens through which we're supposed to read the entire book of Psalms. And if you remember in Psalm 2, Psalm 2 starts by telling us that the nations rage. This is Psalm 2, verse 1. The question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? That's the question. And that phrase there in Psalm 2 on the nation's rage is the exact same phrase in Psalm 46, verse 6. There's a cosmic conflict that's going on here. And it's because the kings of the earth have conspired together against Yahweh's anointed, his Messiah, who is also his son, Psalm 2, whom also in Psalm 2 has been given kingly authority over all the ends of the earth. And if the kings are wise, Psalm 2 says, they will willingly bow before Jesus, but most are not wise. And so what happens to those kings who are not wise? Psalm 2 says they will perish. They'll be crushed. So hold that in your minds from Psalm 2. Keep that in your mind from Psalm 2. And now look at Psalm 48 verse 4. For behold, the kings assembled. And the psalmist, by saying that, he's saying, hey, <laughs> pay attention here. These are the same kings from Psalm 2. They've come together again just like they did in Psalm 2. And they've come together to come against the king's city, the new Jerusalem. But look what happens in verse 5. As soon as they saw it, as soon as the kings saw the city, they were astounded. They were in panic. 
they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them, anguish as of a woman in labor. Now think with me here, okay? Think with me. If you're in a city, okay, imagine an ancient city with walls and you're in this city. And say you look out in the hills and you see multiple armies coming together, preparing to invade your city. How would you feel? Like if you're, imagine, if you're in the city and you're looking out and you see all of these, not just one army, armies conspiring together, all these armies coming together to invade your city. If I'm in a city and I'm looking out and I'm seeing that, I'm going to be astounded, right? I, I am going to be in panic. I'm going to be in anguish. I'm going to tremble with fear, right? We would. We would do that. That makes sense. But look at verse 5. The astonishment and the panic and the flight and the trembling and the anguish comes not from the city when they see the invading armies, but it comes from the invading armies when they see the city they meant to invade. Do you see here in Psalm 48 who it is that's afraid? It's not the city afraid of the invading army. It's the invading army afraid of the city. This is the great reverse that will happen at the end of time. It is when evil is afraid of holiness. It is when war is afraid of peace. It is when anguish is afraid of joy. So it is where the Messiah triumphs. This will be the new Jerusalem when Jesus puts all things right. When Jesus makes all things new, his enemies will be conquered. We see that here in Psalm 48. Also, we see the, the triumph of Jesus we see in the new Jerusalem will be the presence of God stretching over the, the whole earth. And do this quickly, but I want you to see verse 7. This is too important to cut. I cut it, put it back, cut it, put it back. Here it is. Verse 7. Say this five times fast. By the east wind you shatter the ships from Tarshish. I've been meditating on that all week, so it's clear. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Now Tarshish is a famous enemy of Israel in the Bible. If you read the Bible, like Babylon, Tarshish is one of those cities, which is a real city, but it becomes representative of the enemies of Israel. That's what this is. It's representative of all of God's enemies. <laughs> and here in verse 7, the psalmist says that, that, that by the east wind, God will shatter their ships. Now, I don't think this is referring to an actual historical battle in the past. I think this is talking about a battle to come in the future. That's the way that medieval Jewish scholars understood this verse. They saw it as describing the future triumph of the Messiah. And it all really has to do with this important phrase here that we see in the east wind. Now, this phrase shows up about 40 times in the Old Testament. And most of the time, most all of its uses 
have to do with God's judgment and salvation. And the most notable example is Exodus 14, 21. Remember what happened in Exodus 14, 21? Israel had been in captivity in Egypt, but they've finally been set free. And they're leaving Egypt. They're coming now to the Red Sea, and the enemy of Egypt is behind them on their heels. They come to the Red Sea, and now they are stuck. They have nowhere to go. The enemy is coming, and they're stuck. What does God do? Remember? What does he do? He parts the sea. He parts the sea. And just remind you how he did it, Exodus 14, 21. Listen to this. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And he made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And so we see in Exodus 14, by an east wind, the enemies of God's people were conquered, and God's people were saved. And by referring to the east wind here, the psalmist is using this phrase to say basically in verse 8, hey, what God promises to do in the future is the kind of thing we've already seen him do. We know what Yahweh will do for his people. We know what Yahweh is willing to do for his people in the city of Yahweh of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. The Messiah will triumph and his city will, will show his triumph. And now we have to ask to what end? So you part the sea and we get through so our enemies are judged and so we're saved. But what does this salvation mean? That's verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. And notice now in this verse that Psalm 48 has transitioned from describing the triumph of the Messiah over his enemies to now he's describing our experience of life with God. Because that's what salvation means. Salvation means we get to be with God. It means we get to think about the steadfast love of God in his temple, the place where he dwells. God is in this city here. And his name now reaches everywhere, which is to say his revelation reaches everywhere. This is the knowledge of God. This is the ways of God that have now been put into action for everyone to see. And one day all the ends of the earth will see. And when they see, they will praise him. Everywhere the name of God reaches, his praise will be multiplied. And just so we're clear, that's the whole point of everything. That is the end for which God created the world. It's so that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's what Psalm 48 is about. God's presence here will become the entire earth, which will be a city, the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem, this city, will be heaven because God is there. God will be close and clear. And there will be nothing in the way. I saw no temple in the city, John said, for his temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And God will dwell with us there, and we will be his people, and God himself will be with us as our God. That is heaven. That's heaven. That's the city of the new Jerusalem. And when we think about this city, 
when we meditate on this city, when we experience this city, like verse 14 says, we will say, this is God. This is God. God is here. God is here. And he is so much here. He is so much present that our experience of that city will be an experience with God. The presence of God will be the whole place. That is the Messiah's triumph. That is why Jesus came. Jesus came to bring us to God like this. Thirdly, we see the triumph of Jesus in the new Jerusalem because it will be all joy forevermore. We have to mention joy here. Look at verse 2. This city is the joy of all the earth. Verse 11, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Joy, you know, joy. That's, that's the whole purpose, right? That's behind the purpose. That's, it's that God, Yahweh, in his triune fellowship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is dependent upon nothing, but all things are dependent upon him. And before he made anything, he just was. He has always been, and he has always been happy in himself. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. That is the life of God from everlasting to everlasting. And his move to create the world was a move to share his joy. As we've seen in Psalm 16, joy is deeper than the universe because there has never been a time when joy was not because there has never been a time when God was not. All things then that exist, exist from God's joy, and ultimately they are for God's joy, and that's where we're headed. That's where all this is going. The new Jerusalem, heaven, will be all glory because we will see God everywhere. And it will be all joy because God loves to show what we see and we love to see it and he loves that we love to see it and we love that he loves that we love to see it ad infinitum that's where we're headed that's where all this is headed that is the new jerusalem and that is because of jesus that this is the great triumph of jesus christ that's what this city shows the triumph of the Messiah. And those are the first two questions, okay? What is heaven? Heaven's a city, right? Heaven is the heavenly city of the new Jerusalem. The second question, what does heaven do? Heaven manifests the triumph of Jesus. What is heaven? What does heaven do? And now that leads us to the third and final question. And this is going to be a question of application. It's the question, how does our hope become a witness? Now, I want to try to bring this home here, uh, but first we've got to look at how we're, we're getting to the question. So bear with me for a few more minutes. Look at verse 12. Notice the five verbs in, in verse 12. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. Now, with each of these verbs, the psalmist is basically saying to us, 
examine the city. You guys catch that? He's saying, hey, be well acquainted with this city. Basically, meditate on this city. Know about this city. Inspect this city. This is our city. There's a city. This is our city, right? That's, that's what we do. We want to keep, always keep this city in view. We're supposed to always keep this city in front of us. And we do it for a purpose. And that purpose is in verses 13 and 14. All those five verbs together, they come together. They basically mean hope in this city. Long for this city. Think about this city. Hope in the city so that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Everybody see that in verse 14? Just Are you tracking verse 14? Show of hands. You got it, verse 14? Okay. Three of you. Thank you. You knew I was going to say that. How that. Okay. That's verse 14. The psalmist is telling us to deepen. This is, he's telling us deepen our hope in the new Jerusalem. Deepen our hope in heaven for the sake of our witness to the next generation. The psalmist is saying to gladly hope in the future that God has promised us so that we can tell our children who God is. And the idea here of of our children, the idea of next generation in verse 14, I just want to be clear, this goes for everybody, okay? This is not just an application for literal parents. This is for all of us. We all as a church have a responsibility to those who come after us to contend and adorn and hand down the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And according to Psalm 48, our hope in heaven is instrumental here. Our hope in heaven, church, says something about God to the next generation. That's the crescendoing main idea of this psalm, and it leads us now to the next question of how do we do that? In what way does our hope in the new Jerusalem, track with the question, in what way does our hope in the new Jerusalem become a witness to the next generation about who God is? That's a practical question that we're left to ponder here. Psalm 48 doesn't answer it. Psalm 48 just tells us that our hope is a witness. But now we've got to, we've got to think about how our hope might be a witness. And here's my shot at an answer. Our hope in the New Jerusalem is a witness to our children about who God is. Because such a future hope radically shapes the way we live in the present world. And that radical shaping in this present world shows up in at least two ways, and the first has to do with how we respond to things that break. And I have to put this point in here because Friday morning as I was meditating on the how question, as I was trying to figure out how does our hope shape things now, I was literally back and forth on the phone with about three different plumbers because I was trying to get someone to come to our house that morning because Thursday night around 11 o'clock, I, I come home and find about three inches of water sitting in our laundry room in our basement, okay? Not the way things are supposed to be, okay? And, and when I, so I'm literally dealing with this as I'm meditating on the passage and I thought, oh, okay, I got to draw some lines here, right? 
And I was reminded of Jesus' words in John 16 when Jesus, he tells us, in this world, you will have tribulation. I wish that was the first thought when I saw the water sitting in the basement, right? Think about what Jesus has said. In this world, he says it though, it applies. It applies to all kinds of things. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus says. And do you remember what he says after that? Take heart. (laughs) Take heart because I have overcome the world. And now we might add from Psalm 48 that he will overcome this world with the new world that he's bringing here. A city. (laughs) A new Jerusalem. And here's the thing. My hope in that future city is going to show up in how I handle this problem. Right? Make sense? My hope in the heavenly city is going to have a bearing on how I navigate hardship in this world. And guess what? Your kids are watching. Our kid, our kids are watching. The next generation is watching. And so this is one way that our hope is a witness. It has to do with how we respond to hardship. There's another way as well. This one's less reactive. It's more proactive. It has to do with what we're trying to build. We're all trying to build something, right? Just We're all working towards something. We're all doing something. We're all putting our hands to something. And our hope in the new Jerusalem radically shapes the way we live in this world in that We try to build something here that foreshadows our future city. Another way to put this is that we as Christians, we as the church, we should pray the way that Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that, Christians, church. We pray that, but we don't just pray it. We actually do things. (laughs) We actually work toward things on earth as it is in heaven. We, We want to orient ourselves to the created world like everything here that is ugly in this city will one day be made beautiful when that future city comes. And everything here in this city, by God's common grace, everything here in this city that is beautiful, one day it will just be more beautiful. More beautiful. We we want to invest our resources and our energy into making our church the kind of community that is bound together by an otherworldly love and that seeks the peace and prosperity of this metro and that stands here as a shining light of the supremacy of Jesus over all things. We want that. We're, we're trying to build that here. We're working toward that here. We, we as a church, we want to build something here, a, a kind of community, a kind of culture, a kind of physical place that is a witness to our hope in what's to come. We want to build something here that is clear about who Jesus is and that says of Jesus, he is our God forever and ever. Jesus will guide us forever. We want to say that. We want to hope in that. 
And we do it so that the next generation will see this hope in us and so that they would share in this hope that we have and then so that they will then witness to the next generation about this hope and then that generation to the next generation and on and on and on it goes until finally the new Jerusalem's here. It's here. It will be here. Jesus is coming back and that's what now brings us to the table. Because every week at the table... As we remember the death of Jesus for us, as we take the bread and we take the cup and we remember that Jesus died on the cross in our place, we're not just remembering what Jesus did, but we are looking forward to what Jesus will do. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And this morning, if you're here and you're a guest with us and you don't, you've not yet trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you, put your faith in Jesus and hope with us. Come join this hope in Jesus. And church, for those of you who are here who do trust in Jesus, I want to invite you now as we receive the bread and the cup to hope in him, to pray for his return, to long for this lasting city, this new Jerusalem. The pastors are going to serve the bread first. Just hold the bread. It's all gluten-free. I'll come back up and we'll eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.